Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> Boom! It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. Is flying high with lights up in the sky. The crazy about the funk and the moonlight. A great boogie, a little monster jam. It's time for all the zombies in the shadows. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. Hello, you spooktacular people. Happy Halloween. Kelly, it's the listeners and our favorite holiday today. Yes, it is. What are you all going to be doing? Maybe eating some candy. Trick-or-treating. Carving pumpkins. Spooking people. Telling ghost stories. All of these are so much fun when it comes to Halloween. And on this particular episode, we're going to talk about some of our favorite things about Halloween and talk about vintage Halloween. We love that old stuff. We sure do. I'm looking forward to getting into talking a little bit about some of the vintage stuff. And you know, one thing I've noticed recently, well, I should say starting in about August, (laughs) is that they have started coming back with a lot of those vintage Halloween decorations. Yeah, and it seems like it's been over the last couple of years, even. You didn't see a whole lot of it before unless you specifically went out seeking it or you were in an antique shop or something. Right. But even your Targets and your Walmarts and Michaels and those kinds of stores have been having a lot of vintage stuff. Many of us Halloween enthusiasts have a kinship for vintage items with Halloween decorations. They evoke a time in the past that for many of us reminds us of our childhood. On this Halloween special, we'll share a bit about the history of the things that we've loved since childhood. Carving pumpkins, wearing costumes, trick-or-treating, and then talk about the history of vintage decor. (laughs) 
Kelly, do you like to carve pumpkins? I absolutely do. <laughs> now, you and I have gotten into where we like to carve the craft pumpkins so that they last for a really long time. Yeah, because when you put forth so much effort into it, it's a shame to just have it get all molded and sunk it in and everything. Although sometimes they look really cool as they do that. That's they true. They start to decay. <laughs> they do get creepier as they go. And here in Florida, they last about two days, maybe. If even. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why we get into the craft pumpkins, because it's just hard to get them to stay here in Florida. But I remember in Colorado, we'd carve it and have it for a good week. And when I was a kid, I don't know if my dad specifically tried to grow really huge pumpkins, but we did. And there was one year that it was big enough for myself and three of my friends in the neighborhood to all sit on it. That's crazy. And then my dad would take it up to our elementary school and they would keep it in the front lobby so that everybody could see it for a while. And then he'd bring it home and carve it. And we'd put it out on the front porch and my mom would get one of those big... Pillar candles? Yeah, a big (laughs) pillar candle to put in it. And it was just so cool to have these huge pumpkins sitting there. And one year, I don't know how they did it. But, you know, kids used to go around smashing pumpkins and they managed to get that big pumpkin out on the street and smashed it. Oh, yeah. that stinks. I don't know how they managed it, but... Little hoodlums. I know. And then they took the... <laughs> My mom was really upset that they took her big, nice candle. I'm sure. So that was her biggest complaint about that. I love seeing carved pumpkins. It just makes me feel very nostalgic for my childhood. Also, when I think about carved pumpkins, the movie Halloween comes up because you have that carved pumpkin in the opening credits. Well, of course. And you know what else I love about carved pumpkins is the smell when you put the candle in them. Not those little battery operated things. (laughs) A real candle with a real flame. And you put the top on and you get that smoky pumpkin smell. That's true. It's like it's cooking the pumpkin for you. And you love making the seeds. I sure do. You I roast have my them up. special recipe. Mm, they are so good when you do that, too. And speaking of Halloween, Halloween Ends just came out, ended the franchise. Of course, we are Halloween people, not Friday the 13th people. Nothing against you big Jason fans. We're more into our Michael Myers. What'd you think of the movie? I thought it was pretty good. I know, I know our son Jared is a little miffed at the way it all played out. There was a character added that had a lot of the focus on him, which I didn't necessarily think was needed and kind of detracted a little bit, but I was pretty satisfied with how they wrapped it up. I'll say that for me, there were two possibilities for an ending, and I would have been satisfied with either one. And I was satisfied with the way this one ended. Don't give it away. I won't. (laughs) I definitely enjoyed it. I, I feel like this trilogy was a good nail in the coffin of Michael Myers. I'm good with letting it go. And having Halloween be done. We'll see if they actually have ended it or not. You never know. All right. So originally this time of year that we call Halloween was named Samhain. And the Gaelics believed that the veil between life and the afterlife got really thin at this time. This gave them the ability to commune with deceased relatives. And they would put candles in their windows to help light the way home. When villagers would go from house to house, they would also carry makeshift lanterns with them. They would hollow out gourds and then place candles inside. Turnips and potatoes were mostly used in Europe. And a really cool element there is, you know, not a lot of people know that the original jack-o'-lanterns or carved pumpkins were actually turnips. But we just watched a movie the other day on Netflix, The Curse of Bridge Hollow. If you guys have not seen this, do yourselves a favor. Watch it with the kids. It's a great entry film for kids and a great family Halloween film. Yeah, I really loved it. But in it, there's this cursed turnip. That's been carved. Yes, there is. And I just looked at Kelly and went, they've got their history right. I love it. 
There is some folklore connected to how these carved gourds came to be known as jack-o'-lanterns. The Irish shared the legend of Stingy Jack. And guess what else makes an appearance in this movie? It's called the Festival of Stingy Jack. Jack got his stingy nickname because he was just that, stingy. Once he got stingy with the wrong person, if you can call him a person, that person being the devil. Jack invited the devil to have a drink with him. But when it came time to pay, Jack wasn't interested in paying. He came up with an idea. He suggested that the devil turn himself into a coin, and then Jack would pay for the drinks with the coin. The devil turned into a coin, but instead of paying for the drinks, Jack put the coin in his pocket next to a silver cross he kept there, and the devil was trapped. Eventually, Jack agreed to free him if the devil promised not to come after his soul for a year. When the year was up, Jack trapped the devil in a tree by carving a cross on the trunk, and Jack agreed to help him down if he promised to leave him alone for 10 years. Jack then died shortly thereafter, but he wasn't allowed into heaven. The devil also couldn't take Jack with him because of his promise, so he sent Jack off into the dark. He gave him a piece of coal to light his way, and Jack put it inside a carved-out turnip. Jack has roamed the earth ever since. The Irish called him Jack of the Lantern. So there you get Jack-o'-lantern. Of course, I think most people know that the name Jack is like John for us here in America. It's a very common name. When Europeans came over to America, they continued this custom, and the indigenous people introduced them to a much better gourd to use, and this was the pumpkin. Putting scary faces on the pumpkin started with young people wanting to do pranks. In Europe, they would take some of these lanterns with faces and walk them around in the dark as though they were floating, and claim that this was Stingy Jack. This got even more refined in America, where pumpkins looked even more like a disembodied head. By the end of the 19th century, the jack-o'-lanterns became a part of Halloween decor. The wife of the mayor of Atlanta hosted a party in 1892, and she put several carved pumpkins around as decorations, particularly on the porch. The carved pumpkins gained in popularity with vintage Halloween decor and movies like The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which depicted the headless horseman with a flaming pumpkin for a head. And now today, it's become a tradition across the world to carve pumpkins and place them out on our front porches or in our windows on Halloween night. Of course, now we carve all kinds of designs into them, but we mainly used to stick to just doing a face. And now you know why you mostly would do a face, because it was supposed to be like a disembodied head. Kelly, two of our other favorite things from our childhood. Well, we still do them today. I was going to say. Costumes and (laughs) trick-or-treating. We dress up every year. And if you go to the Disney parks, you can trick-or-treat as an adult as well. When I found that out, I was like, oh, I've fallen into heaven. (laughs) Hot diggity dang. Wearing costumes at Samhain began for the Celts. The purpose of wearing the costumes was to ward off spirits who would be traversing into our world since the veil between this world and the afterlife was thin. Later, people put on costumes so they could impersonate the dead as they went from house to house to get treats in exchange for recitations of poetry or the singing of songs, also known as mumming. In parts of Western Europe, this act of visiting houses was to collect offerings for the dead or to say prayers for them. It would be North America that would turn these traditions into what Halloween is today, with parades, costumes, and trick-or-treating. This started in the 19th century. Obviously, earlier costumes were designed to be terrifying since they were meant to scare spirits away. And anyone who's seen photos of early costumes knows this to be true. These costumes are truly the things of nightmares. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) 
We'll post a few up on Instagram. I know we've had people post them in our Spooktacular crew. You've probably all seen them. They're just your standard clown and who knows what else kind of costumes, but they look terrifying because they're homemade and like made out of paper mache and all kinds of creepy stuff. For me, even the ones that we used to wear, those plastic masks with that little slit for your tongue to stick through when we were children, even those are creepy to me now. You know, when you think about (laughs) it, they were pretty darn creepy looking. They were. It's just like this face, you know, this like plastic thing on your face. So you can't see anything but the eyes. And yeah. For many of us, our early costumes were homemade. And some of the more popular outfits were not politically correct. There were gypsy costumes and hobos. Admit it, Kelly. Did you go as a hobo? I did not. But my mom did actually one year when she dressed up with me. Yeah, I had the little knapsack on the stick and, you know, the black on my face. And I even carried around a liquor bottle that had oh, cream geez. soda in it. <laughs> and I was a kid. My mom had one of those big fake plastic cigars, too, that she carried. With her. <laughs> That's great. I mean, nowadays, there's probably some young people listening going, what's a hobo? I'm sure. It basically was... Um, a train jumper, homeless person that yeah, would travel from town to town. I don't know that you town. would necessarily call them homeless as they were just a, a transient Travelers. person. Yes, that mostly would ride the rails around. and Illegally. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a really popular costume when we were kids that is technically not a word we use anymore. Gypsies. Now we refer to this ethnic group as Romani, Roma, because they come from that area of the world, and it's become basically a slur to use that G word anymore. I believe I dressed up in that kind of clothing once, and I know I had some friends that did as well. And you just, you have a dress, you're flamboyant. A lot of these people are depicted, especially in the old classic horror movies, as fortune tellers traveling from town to town in a wagon selling things. The ones that really bring back an air of nostalgia, for those of us in the crew that grew up in the 1970s and 80s, are the Ben Cooper costumes. Those are the ones you were just talking about, Kelly. Yes, indeed. Ben Cooper Incorporated was one of the three largest Halloween costume manufacturers in the U.S. between the 1950s and the mid-1980s. The company produced very inexpensive costumes with masks made from plastic and smocks made from vinyl so they could all hear us walking down the street. (laughs) I can hear the (laughs) swishing in my ears as you say it. They were definitely cheap because I think we nearly ripped all of them at some point while walking in them. Did you ever do that? I I, I think I ripped every single one of mine along the legs or something. I don't remember ripping them. I think my mom probably would have kicked my booty. I don't know if kids still wear (laughs) costumes, but back in elementary school, we'd wear them to school and have a little parade during the day. So if you're wearing that all day long, sitting in your seat, getting up and down, wasn't hard to rip them. That's true. We only got to do a little parade. We didn't get to wear them all day. Oh, you didn't? Mm Mm-mm. Oh, we got to wear ours all day. So maybe that's why I don't remember ripping them. That could be. Yeah, and I even think in middle school we could wear our costumes all day. I don't think it was until high school that we didn't. It wasn't like Stranger Things where... They all wore their costumes to school. I think they were in middle school, weren't they? Or was it, were I they freshmen they were in high school? they were supposed to be in middle school. I, no, it might have been high school. And they were the only ones. <laughs> I was like, oh, the that would have been me. Yep. Ben Cooper was born in New York City in 1906 and started out as an accountant, but jumped over to designing costumes for the theater in 1927. 
Talk about a career change. Accountant, a costume (laughs) designer. Cooper changed his focus to Halloween costumes in the 1930s as the Great Depression shuttered theaters. He bought A.S. Fishbach Incorporated, which was licensed to use Walt Disney characters, and founded Ben Cooper, Inc. in 1942. Cooper got his costumes into Sears and JCPenney and Woolworths. In the 1980s, the company suffered a variety of financial issues, filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy twice, and eventually was bought out by Ruby's Costume Company in 1992. And I have to say, Jared has a couple of the Ruby's masks, and they're really good masks. Oh, well, very cool. That creepy old clown that he wears? Yeah. That's a Ruby's. That one's cool because that one articulates according to the way he moves his jaw, right? Sure does. Yeah. Ooh, those are creepy masks. Much better than the plastic ones you were referencing. I could see that that might be why they suffered a variety of financial issues. Because how many kids got their tongues stuck in the little mouth? I was just going to ask you if you ever got your tongue stuck. (laughs) Yes, and it hurt like hell. Why did we all have to stick our tongues out that little bitty hole? And why did the mouth have a little bitty hole? For somebody to talk, I guess. I guess. Maybe so you could be heard, even though you probably still sound like... <laughs> I went as... <laughs> I went as... <laughs> I went as Snoopy one year and my sister was Woodstock. So it kind of would have sounded right for us to be like we were out of a Charlie Brown special. Cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Trick-or-treating in medieval Europe had a Christian twist to it as the church had adopted All Saints Day on November 1st to take the pagan traditions out of Samhain. The night before became All Hallows Eve which we now call Halloween. So that's how you get Halloween. The act of going door to door to sing and to gather treats or spice cakes called soul cakes for the dead was called souling. One of the traditional songs goes this way. A soul, a soul, a soul cake. Please good missus a soul cake. An apple, a pear, a plum or a cherry. Any good thing to make us all merry. One for Peter, two for Paul, three for him who made us all. So I guess we're getting three cakes for God. Sounds that way. I'm sure he needs some soul cakes, right? No one is sure what the original soul cakes were made of, but more modern versions contain flour, butter, egg yolks, fine sugar, milk, vinegar sometimes. Interesting. Dried fruit and spices. And they're usually decorated with a cross across the top. Let me just say, I'm really glad that now it's come down to Three Musketeers and Milky Way bars. (laughs) I was going to say chocolate, perhaps. (laughs) If somebody gives me a soul cake when I come to their door, I might not be very happy. We love vintage Halloween. For collectors, the heyday of vintage Halloween collectibles covers the period from the 1920s to the 1960s. But the vintage look has really undergone a renaissance and has been popping up in various stores over the last couple of years. This is new stuff, but with a nostalgic look. The original vintage came in a variety of styles, from noisemakers to postcards to paper mache lanterns to party decorations to books to candy bowls to home decor to costumes. In the early 1900s, children carried parade sticks as they trick-or-treated. These had various carved designs, like pumpkins, and were lit by a candle. That sounds safe, carrying around a parade (laughs) stick with a lit candle. Here, kids, go out and have some fun. Halloween parties have always been popular, but they had an unprecedented popularity in the 1920s, and this continued through to the 1930s. Preparations would start in August. That's my kind of Halloween party. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, they keep moving Halloween up further and further. But as we can see, historically, 
We're just going back to our roots. We're supposed to be starting this in August. Clearly. You need time to plan for the perfect costume, the right decorations. And noisemakers were a popular party favor. Because somebody was high. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who would think, here, everybody, have a noisemaker. See how loud this party's going to get and how annoying. I have to say, though, the noisemakers are very cool looking. We will be putting pictures up on the Instagram so you can see a lot of these vintage items. The Denison Manufacturing Company published Halloween-themed craft and party idea books called Bogey Books from 1909 through the 1930s. A bogey book from 1920 says of Halloween that it is the one time of all the year when an opportunity is supposed to be given for looking into the future and having one's fate settled for the coming 12 months. Why not invite your friends to a Halloween party and join in the fun of trying some of the time-honored ways of finding out what the future holds in store? I knew that the veil was thin, so you could have more of a back and forth with the afterlife and the spirits are going to be more easily able to come into our world. But I had no idea you could do all kinds of fortune See the future. And, yeah. <laughs> the book is full of tips on making that perfect spooky zone and ideas for party games, mostly involving blindfolds and choosing future loves. The books also had ghost stories. Another one that I looked up out of the Library of Congress, so it's really cool to be able to see these books and the outside of them, what they look like. They had that vintage, of course, because they were from the 1920s and stuff. Look to them. It read, The night when mystic spirits are supposed to be abroad and supernatural events take place. What a night for a party. The hostess who entertains on Halloween has a wealth of superstitions and traditions that can supply the ideas, not only for the games and stunts, but also for the decorations. With the bogey book to picture decorations, favors, and costumes for Halloween harvest time and Thanksgiving, it's very easy to plan and give an unusually delightful party. I would have said spooktacular. Yeah. (laughs) Party. (laughs) Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Probably the most famous producer of vintage Halloween is the Beistel Company. And that is spelled B-E-I-S-T-L-E, which I'm sure all of you have heard of. You probably just didn't know how to say it. This company was founded in 1900 by Martin Luther Beistel. Beistel was born in 1875 in Pennsylvania. He married Anna Mary and they had three children. One of his interests was coins and he had a large collection numbering 8,200 of United States half dollars dating from 1794 to 1929. That's a lot of half dollars. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Heck yeah, it is. 
He invented and marketed the unique coin holder, which was an acetate slide-covered cardboard holder used to store coins from 1927 to 1970. But by far his greatest contribution when it came to paper products was starting the Beistel Company. Before founding the company in his Pittsburgh home's basement, he worked as a salesperson for the Pittsburgh Art Calendar Company. One of the places he tried to sell the calendars was in hotels, and he made a keen observation while in the lobby of hotels. All the live plants were dead because nobody would bother to water them. Beistel got the idea to create paper plants, and he improved on his design after a trip to Heidelberg, Germany where he learned a honeycombing technique that could be used to make tissue paper decorations and products. The Beisel Company grew and was able to incorporate in 1907. Eventually, Beisel moved the company to Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, and it was incredibly successful, surviving the Great Depression and both world wars. When Beisel died in 1935 at just the age of 59, his son-in-law, Henry E. Lures, I think, I'm not sure it's L-U-H-R-S, took over the company, and it continues to be run by descendants to this day. The company has made party decorations and novelties for all holidays, but is probably most famous for its Halloween designs. As a matter of fact, Kelly, the first seasonal decorations added to the catalog were for Halloween. Excellent. So even for them, that was number one. And those honeycomb things that you were talking about, imagine like those paper bells that you make where they're flat and then you turn them around and clip them together. Gotcha. That's the honeycombing. This started in 1921 and has continued for over a hundred years with over a thousand different designs and decorations. These designs include witches, black cats, bats, owls, spiders, and jack-o'-lanterns. There were also cardboard fortune-telling games that served as Halloween party entertainment, with questions including, will I soon be engaged? And does my employer like me? Alrighty then. (laughs) The Halloween designs were so popular, we probably have Beistel to thank for making Halloween so popular. With the popularity of vintage decor, the Beistel company started Vintage Beistel, with some of the products dating back to the 1920s with designs that are over 80 years old. One of the more popular items that has survived through the years, and that most of the listeners more than likely know, and I posted this in the Spectacular Crew because it's my favorite Beistel design, that 55-inch long jointed skeleton. It was introduced by Beistel in the 1930s. Kelly, in mint condition, an original can fetch up to 75 bucks. Good grief. And if it's in the packaging, it can go for 150 Holy cow. I mean, these were those skeletons we used to play with as a kid. You right. know, or disarticulate them in all different ways and stuff. 150 bucks. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have trashed that thing. Oh, man. I used to take mine in the front window and I had like this putty and I'd change his configuration every day. Oh, neat. (laughs) Just to liven it up a little. And now you do it with a skeleton out on the front lawn. Yeah. (laughs) Our five foot skelly. Yeah. And Nellie, his wife. Did they get married? I thought he just asked her to marry him. They haven't gotten married yet. Maybe that's what next Halloween is going to be them getting married. Listeners, we do have them in the front yard, and he is down on one knee. He is. Proposing. (laughs) He's been waiting now for three weeks for her to say something. Black cats were the next popular image to be launched by the company in the 1930s. In the 1950s, Beistel started embracing more fun, kid-friendly designs that featured a ghost and a large owl. One of the companies to embrace these old Beistel designs is Creepy Company. Kelly Taylor is the founder and creative director of Creepy Company which got its start on Instagram and has gotten huge from there. 
Creepy Company got the license to Bystel, and each year since 2016, Creepy Company has worked with the Bystel Company to produce officially licensed vintage Halloween goodies in the form of pins, shirts and sweaters, patches, and throws with the designs. If you aren't signed up for their newsletter, you should rectify that. I get one in my inbox, inbox. <laughs> every single week, and I get so tempted to buy stuff. There is one that has the Bystel skull on it, and it's a cardigan sweater, and I haven't had a cardigan in years, and I'm kind of like, I think I would like to have a cardigan, and with a big skull on the back of it. Why not? Yeah, so if you haven't checked out Creepy Company stuff, their Bystel stuff is very cool. Stocking stuffer. And I have to say, it was because I kept getting their newsletter that I was like, I think I know what our theme's going to be for this Halloween. We're going to talk about this vintage stuff. Excellent. So that's that. I asked on the Spooktacular crew, you know, what do you guys think about vintage? And it seems that a lot of our Spooktacular crew and listeners really dig that stuff, too. And they were sharing some pictures and such. We also like to share listeners' experiences on these Halloween episodes. But first, we wanted to start with our neighbors who shared their experiences with us at a fall festival our neighborhood hosted. We had a little sign up at our table. Have you had any paranormal experiences and would you like to share them? And I was actually surprised that we got people to volunteer to share their stories because a lot of people don't want to talk about that stuff. Yeah, I was very pleased with it. One of our neighbors had moved here from Beaufort, South Carolina, and he had lived in a trailer there, I guess. And one morning he woke up and he was unable to move and feeling as though something were watching him and holding him down. Kelly, this is basically your classic case of sleep paralysis. He said he was completely terrified. I would imagine. Another neighbor told us of an experience her sister had while visiting Gettysburg. She had stayed at the Farnsworth house and the room that they slept in had a picture of General Lee on the wall. The picture fell off the wall, and they could not figure out how it picked itself up off the nail. The fireplace also turned on by itself, and the door unlocked itself. Another neighbor had worked at an old theater in Boston. This was your standard historic theater that had hosted plays and then vaudeville acts, and finally into the movie era. While he worked there, it had converted back to a community theater. They had a ghost light like all theaters do, and this one always acted weird. It would blink all on its own, and no matter how many times they changed out the bulb and checked the wiring, it continued to do its own thing, turning off and on by itself as well. Anyone who was left to do the nightly checks before leaving felt uneasy, especially when having to check that the ghost light was on. They started playing the song Walk of Life while doing checks to make themselves feel better. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'm walking by myself, so I'll just do the walk of life. Yeah, see, it's all nice and happy until <laughs> the ghost shows up and starts dancing. One of our other neighbors had a lot of stories to share. She feels as though she is sensitive to the other side. The house where they had lived previously was in Indiana, and the house was haunted. The sliding glass door opened on its own. They would see a depression in the bed as though something unseen was lying down. The lights in the bathroom would turn off, and something had messed with some of the wires in the house. Yeah, and she was all excited when she found out that we do investigation. She's like, I want to come on whatever you're doing. You let me know. I want to go on one of those. Yeah, we have a couple of neighbors that want to join us. <laughs> and she's the one who makes the cupcakes that I absolutely love. They are so good. 
A lot of you know Janae from our Spooktacular crew. She shared an experience. She said, hello, fearless leaders. My friends and I just got back from a girls weekend down to Mammoth Cave and Lost River Cave in Kentucky. I love it when you tell me that you're having a girls weekend and you go to caves in Kentucky. I know. (laughs) You're expecting them to go. We had a spa day and then we went to go get some dinner or something. It's like, oh, no, we went to Mammoth Cave. I was like, oh, yeah. I had two experiences I wanted to share with you. The first was inside Mammoth Cave. As we've discussed, I talk to dead people, but I try to stay grounded about the whole thing and get validation as much as possible because it can be surreal. And I can tell you that Janae is very reluctant to talk about this. So I believe she does have some kind of abilities when it comes to this. It's not something she advertises or gets paid for, that kind of thing. No, and I've chatted with her previously as well. Yeah. I get why people are skeptical about this stuff. All of the tours at Mammoth were booked except the self-guided tour, which is what we did. When we got into the cave, I saw in my head, I'm a clairvoyant medium, so I see them with my mind's eye, a shadow figure of a young man walking backwards in front of me like a tour guide. I got the sense that he was late teens, early 20s, and I kept hearing the name Stephen. I'm also clairaudient. He popped up a couple times, and I felt like he really knew the caves, but it was a short tour full of other people, so I had a hard time concentrating on just him. And I love that they were on this self-guided tour. And then here she has a tour guide who's like, hey, I'll help you. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) He seemed to stick around for a while in case I had any questions. After the tour, my friends and I went hiking and we found the old guide cemetery. There is a sign posted out in front of the cemetery and it briefly discussed the grave of the guide, Stephen Bishop. Well, hello, Stephen. Flash forward to today. I went back through and listened to the HGB episode on Kentucky Caves. Diane discusses the guide, Stephen Bishop who started working in the caves when he was 17, and it was said that he was one of the ghosts there. I believe he was my shadow guide. While at the cemetery, I felt a very strong pull off to the left and wandered away from my friends. I put both hands firmly on the black iron fence that surrounds the cemetery and waited. After a couple seconds, I felt a hand wrap around my left wrist. It felt very warm. Slowly, I looked up and saw a larger man with a broad face and black eyes standing there in front of me. Again, this was in my mind's eye. At the same moment I looked up, I got a super sharp headache from the top of my right eye down to the side of my nose. Before I saw him, I knew he would have an injury to match the pain, and he did. It looked almost like an axe wound or something like that. Ooh, he got an axe to the head. It looked painful, and I kept hearing the word murder. I tried to ask him if he was murdered, but he was frantic, and I couldn't get much out of him. The headache was becoming too much, so I had to ask him to let go and remind him he was not allowed to follow me. The headache dissolved as soon as I was out of sight from the cemetery. I have no idea who the second guy was, but he apparently met an unfortunate end on the grounds somewhere. Very cool experiences there. And what I absolutely love is that she went back and listened to the HGB episode. So it's not something that she had remembered hearing or they'd listened before they got there. So she had already been kind of tainted to believe in this (laughs) Stephen tour guide. Exactly. So what a validation not only for her sensitivities especially finding the tombstone there, but validation for some of the stories that we shared with people as well. We also heard from Adrian. She had just discovered our podcast fairly recently. She, of course, did like most people, went all the way back to the very first episode and is working her way through. She said she's really enjoying it. It combines my love of travel with my new love of haunted places, which started in 2020 by going to cemeteries to pass the time. I've always liked cemeteries and looking at the names and wondering what all that person did in their life. I'd go with my granny who lived with us, and she would take us to where our family was buried. 
This is how I know my great-grandfather's buried between both his wives. I don't believe in all things paranormal, but I do believe in ghosts, angels, and demons. I saw something when I was 13. We had just moved in a house that my mother had built. A little background for the story. My mother and my dad divorced when I was very young, like around two to three years old, and my brother was six months to a year. My grandmother, who was my dad's mother, had died when I was seven or eight. My dad had stopped coming for visits. These things come into play with this story. It was our first winter in the house. We had a huge ice storm that hit. Living in Oklahoma, we did not get many of these. We had just sat down to watch a movie, and the dog barked. Someone knocked at the door. It was my dad. He had no car. My mother, being the nice person she was, let him in. And just to let you know, we lived about seven miles from town. My mother told him that he could stay the night. I'm not sure why he didn't sleep on the couch, but instead she put him in my brother's room and my brother in her room with her. I was in my room trying to fall asleep. I turned over on my back and was looking at my small Christmas tree that I had in my room. And this tree did not have any lights on it. By the tree was this shadow figure. It looked like it was breathing. Then it moved closer to me. I covered my head for a few seconds, looked again, and it was still standing there. You got to hate it when you put up your shield with the covers and then the thing's still there. I jumped and ran to my mother's room and asked if I could sleep with her. She asked what was wrong, and I said, something black and scary, and it's after me. The next morning before we woke up, my mother took my dad to the bus station. Later, my mom asked about what I saw, and I explained what I saw. She said it was probably my grandmother who was attached to my dad. My mother believed that she was a bad person in the afterlife because she'd been a mean person and she didn't believe in God, which is why she might have come across as a shadow figure that was scary. Just writing this made my heart race and made me feel scared again. I'm not sure what it was, but I never saw it again. That's pretty terrifying, Adrian. Anybody seeing a shadow figure, unless it's Kelly's Mr. Henry, is pretty darn scary. John Michaels had sent me an email back in July, and I'd saved it for some time to just throw into a show because I wanted to ask listeners about it, and I decided I'd share it now. He had said the recent episode of 99% Invisible, which is a podcast about design, featured octagon houses. After the main story, they covered why it seems that most octagon houses were reported to be haunted. You gotta love it when it's 99% invisible and they're talking about haunted houses. Wow. And I had no idea that that was a known thing. Yeah, and that most are said to be haunted. Interesting. This was unusual for this type of podcast to acknowledge. I'd heard the same is true of round structures such as lighthouses, and we have found that most lighthouses are haunted. Somehow the shape just encourages hauntings, which also begs the question, is there a shape or construction that resists hauntings? I'll leave that to you ladies to explore. So what do you think, Kelly? I mean, this is really interesting to think that, you know, these round or octagonal houses generally have hauntings. Is there a shape that doesn't? And I'm thinking that your best bet is to be in a square house because it's easier for you to protect the four corners of a square house. Ah, that would make sense. I'm thinking, gosh, with an octagon house, you'd have a whole bunch of corners that you would have to try to protect. That's true. So I don't know if that's the case. Um, We know circles are usually supposed to be protective if you're inside of them. But I'm wondering if the circle could maybe be trapping something inside. Could be. We might need to go down a few rabbit holes. Yeah, so I wanted to put this out there to the listeners, and the Halloween episode seemed like a good time to do it. What do you guys think? Is there a shape that would be safer to live in? Do you think that there's anything to this? A shape of a building or a house having an effect on the paranormal activity? 
Is there a way to prevent it? And then he also asked another unrelated question. Have you ever heard of ghosts at the same location, but of different eras ever being cognizant of each other? It seems from different investigations that the answer is no. We never hear of a psychic or investigator identifying a ghost from, let's say, 1970, acknowledging another spirit from the 1800s. It reminds me of the movie Sixth Sense, the character of Cole, played by Haley Joel Osment, that states that ghosts aren't aware of each other. That somewhat seems to be the case if they are from different eras. What are your thoughts? I go a little bit in two different directions. I definitely think that if they're having passed within maybe 20 or 30 years of each other, that they could perhaps be aware of each other. But if we're talking about centuries different, I don't think that they would be. Yeah, it seems like when you hear about, let's say this location has three ghosts in it. There's this woman in white from the 1920s. And then we have this person who got murdered a couple months ago or whatever, a couple, you know, a few years ago, like 20 years ago. You don't hear like them both standing there talking to each other or doing something together. I guess I never really thought about it, that you don't see them interacting with each other or communicating with each other. Well, the one thing that sparked a thought in my head is when you're listening to the spirit box Mm -hmm. and there's multiple voices coming through and sometimes you actually have to request, okay, one at a time. And it does seem like they typically cooperate because it becomes more clear. There's conversations that are had because we do it with the Estes method. So Mm -hmm. you don't even know what's happening, (laughs) what I'm asking. And it definitely seems as if they're cooperating with each other. Now, again... They could all be from a certain era that is more closely related time-wise. I don't know. That's a good point because I hadn't really thought about the interactions on the spirit box. We don't generally know what era they are from, but I've told you many times that I get the feeling that sometimes they're not even talking to us, that I'm like listening in on a conversation they're having with each other. This is true. Especially... Not only has it happened to us, but we've seen it on some of the paranormal shows on TV where they're almost shushing each other, like, don't talk to them or don't say that. Right. And we've also seen on some of those shows that you'll have like a main stronger entity or something that seems to be either holding the other ones there or pushing them back, overpowering everybody else. But I don't know that we've ever heard them referred to as being from different eras. Like generally speaking, let's say you have a house that a murder happened in. And either the murderer died there, too, or they come back for some reason in the afterlife. And I always hate hearing this, but somehow they're still overpowering that victim. Right. But they're from the same era, obviously, and they'd interacted with each other before. So it does make you wonder. So those are great questions, John. Things that make you go, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. So we'd love to hear from you guys, too. (laughs) While you're sitting around waiting for your trick-or-treaters to come to the door. Shoot off an email. Yes. Let us know or send us a message. We'd love to hear from you guys about that. We hope you enjoyed the History Ghost Bump Halloween special for 2022. We hope you all have a great Halloween. Be safe out there. Don't let Michael Myers get you. Well, he walks slow, so don't worry about it. True that. (laughs) I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Happy Halloween.
need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.